This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Um, it's so nice to have kind words said about you. And I learned uh, a few years ago not to fish for compliments. So I had been exercising a lot and running, and I had uh, I lost a lot of weight. And so I went to the kids, and I was ready to impress them. I said, you know, kids, I only weigh three pounds more now than I did when I was a senior in high school. And I wait for the compliments to come in. And my daughter looks at me, she goes, oh my gosh, Dad, you were that fat in high school? <laughs> <laughs> so that didn't go over very well. Um, so what are we talking about today? Today we're talking about uh, end-of-life care from a Thomistic perspective. And I want to talk to you about uh, some challenges to the Thomistic view, um, some strategies for meeting those challenges, and finally and very briefly, some models for moving forward with end-of-life care. So my future predictions are certainly not infallible. When I was, uh, uh, this is quite a while ago now, uh, I went to my dad and I said, well, I've uh, got this money when Grandpa Daddy left us some money. And I said, I'm, I want to invest this money in, a, uh, in some sort of, in a, some stock. And, and he goes, oh, okay, that sounds good. So what do you think of investing in? And uh, I thought, well, I, I think I'll invest in America Online. And uh, he suggested I invest in Microsoft. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's not going anywhere. Don't, I'm not going to do that. So, so that didn't work out. But, um, but here's a prediction that I think is quite uh, plausible. We are going to have a huge number of elderly people in the United States before too long because the baby boomer generation, the largest single cohort of Americans, is now uh, rapidly aging. And there is going to be more and more need of end-of-life care. And unfortunately, we have uh, a shift in our society where, on average, people are having fewer and fewer children. And so there's going to be fewer and fewer younger people there to care for these, these uh, older people approaching uh, the end of life. And so there really is a challenge now about end-of-life care. How do we handle uh, growing old? How do we handle the many people that are going to need our help? And so I want to talk about some uh, challenges, at least from a Thomistic perspective, in terms of caring for uh, people at the end of life. And the first challenge I want to call the quality of life challenge. And what this means is that your value is considered on simple economic terms. And so if you're able to produce, if you're able to be a contributor to society and hold down a good job and bring in salary, well, then you're valuable. And if you're not, your value is decreasing. Now, people at the end of life tend to lose their cognitive abilities, lose their physical abilities. And so on this view, their value would get lower and lower and lower. And then if their value got low enough, you might even come to the conclusion that some people have lives that are no longer worth living. One way to think about this is in terms of utilitarianism. If you had a utilitarian view, you might say, the whole point of living an ethical life is to bring about the greatest happiness for the greatest number. And happiness, at least for people like Mill, was understood as pleasure and the lack of pain. And so you might reason, if you had a utilitarian philosophy, that as people get to the end of life, their life loses its quality, and therefore their life at some point becomes more painful than pleasurable, and therefore their life would be such that they'd be better off dead. And there is some truth to this view in the sense that if you've worked with elderly people, as I have, their lives really are hard. And I don't think there's any way around the fact that at the end of life, for many people, they're suffering terribly. And the pains of their life do outweigh the pleasures of their life. Um, so that's one challenge, a quality of life challenge. And it leads into the second challenge, which would be a subjective view of health and a subjective view of health care. So, you can think of health in a purely subjective way. And what I mean by that is that what health is would vary from person to person and that there wouldn't be any sense of health as the objective flourishing in a biological sense of an individual organism. And if you think of health care as providing what the patient wants, if you think of health even the way the World Health Organization defines it as the complete well-being of the person in a physical, social, and um, psychological sense, a kind of total well-being, well, then you might come to the conclusion, right, 
that physician-assisted suicide is not only something that should be permitted, but really ends up being somewhat of an obligation. There are people at the end of life who request aid in dying. There are people at the end of life who want to kill themselves or want to have a physician help to kill them. And if this subjective view of health is right, if the doctor's duty is to provide whatever it is that the physician or that the patient requests, well, then you can see straight away how a physician-assisted suicide would be morally permissible. And in fact, not only permissible, but really a duty. And that leads to this third challenge, which would be the idea that uh, conscience rights for physicians who do not want to provide physician-assisted suicide should be taken away. So those of you who do bioethics know the scholarly, scholarly literature, and you know that there's a number of uh, advocates for abolishing rights of conscience for healthcare providers. And their basic idea is, look, if a procedure is legal, the procedure is requested by the patient, and the procedure is beneficial, then there's no grounds for a doctor or a nurse or any healthcare professional to refuse to provide that procedure. And so if we take the case of physician-assisted physician suicide, the idea would be, well, look, um, this is a requested um, uh, procedure, right, to end the life of the patient. It is something that the, uh, is beneficial to the patient because, as we got done talking about earlier, if their quality of life th falls below a certain threshold, the individual no longer has a life that's worth living. And in certain states, at least in the United States, it is a legal procedure, right? Washington, Oregon, California, and of course, the Supreme Court could legalize it nationally. As you may know, they considered this uh, previously, but the court now is constituted in a different way than it was when they decided it before. So you can imagine with you know, one or two appointments to the court, now physician-assisted suicide would be uh, legal in all, in all states. And if that happens, the, uh, those who challenge conscience rights would say that doctors, nurses, healthcare professionals should have no legal right to refuse to do this. So say you're a doctor and you say, well, I don't want to do that. Well, you could, but then the cost of that would be that you leave your profession, right? That you get out of, you stop being a doctor, you start, stop being a nurse, you stop being a healthcare professional. And so the choice would be very stark, right? Either you do this or you get out of medicine. A fourth challenge. Uh, the fourth challenge I'll call body self-dualism. So body self-dualism is the idea that you are really your thoughts, beliefs, desires, memories, etc. cetera. Uh, body self-dualism is in the ancient world represented by, say, somebody like uh, Socrates, right? Who would say that uh, the soul is imprisoned in the body and that the body isn't really me. And that's why Socrates thought that a good person could never be harmed, right? Because obviously, if you're a good person, I could harm your body. I could cut off your arm or something terrible. But if you really aren't your body, if you are really your soul, and the only way your soul can be harmed is if you do something evil, well, then there's nothing anyone could do to you to ever harm you, right? You're invulnerable. The only way you could harm, you could get harmed is if you harmed yourself. So in the contemporary world, there's people who have a similar view of the human person, right? And so on this view, what you are, are really your autonomy, right? Your free choice, your thoughts, beliefs, desires, dreams, plans, etc. So that's the real you. Arguably, the philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre had this sort of view, right? That what you are really is your freedom and your autonomy. Well, if that's true, well, then you can see how if your body starts to break down, Right? You're at the end of life and you're feeling sick and you've got this problem and you've got that problem. Getting rid of your body would be akin to, I don't know, getting rid of your car. Right? You're like the driver of the car, but the body's not really you. So to destroy your body or to end the life of your body isn't really even to harm you at all. And the final challenge I want to talk about comes from, you might say, the other end of the spectrum. Some people think of life as so important that Every effort needs to be made to extend bodily life as much as possible. You might call this vitalism. The idea of vitalism would be something like, uh, whenever it's possible to extend human life, that should be done, that ought to be done. And that to refuse some life-prolonging treatment is always to do something morally problematic. And the reasoning is something like this. If you hold 
that every single human being has basic value, equal basic dignity. Well then, to refuse treatments that would extend your life is a way of disrespecting your life. So they think just as much as, say, intentionally killing you would be a way of disrespecting your life. So I'm sure there are other challenges to a Thomistic view of end-of-life care, but these five are ones that came to my mind, and maybe in the question and answer we can talk about other ones, but these five seem important. So what I want to do now is try to respond to some of these challenges. And I want to respond to the first challenge, the quality of life view. And I think the right way to think about the value of a human person is not that your value is contingent on how much pleasure you happen to be enjoying at the moment or contingent on how much pain you happen to be in at a moment. I think that kind of philosophy makes sense only on the supposition of a utilitarian ethic. And I think for reasons we can talk about later that we ought not to accept a utilitarian ethic. We ought not to think of ethics as the bringing about of the greatest happiness for the greatest number where happiness is understood as pleasure and uh, the lack of pain. And we can talk about why I think that view doesn't work if you like. Um, I think we should also reject a kind of functional view of the person according to which human beings are a little bit like a cell phone, right? So think of your cell phone. What makes your cell phone valuable? Well, your cell phone has value because you're able to call people with it, you're able to text with it, surf, go online with it. You're able to do things with your cell phone. It functions in a certain way. Now, if today your cell phone gets run over by a car and it just smashed into a bunch of glass and plastic and metal, well, your cell phone loses all its value. And I think it's a mistake to think about the value of you and me as if we were, as if we were mere tools, as if our value uh, depended on the way we function, as if we were just products in a marketplace and our value was determined by supply and demand. I mean, you can think about people's value that way, but I think that's the wrong way to think about people's value. So I think the philosopher Immanuel Kant was right when he distinguished things that have a price from things with the dignity. And the basic idea would be things with a price, their value is determined by supply and demand. And if you're functioning well, your demand goes up, and so you'd be more valuable. And if you're not functioning well, the demand for you would go down and you would lose your value. But if Kant's right, the right way to think about us as human beings as, as, is as ends in ourselves. That is to say that we ought to always be respected as ends in ourselves and never used simply as a means. This sort of view is also found in the Declaration of Independence. You guys all know those famous words, right? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among these life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And you might say, well, that is saying that all uh, white male Protestant land-holding men um, are created equal. Uh, but I think that, uh, that actually is not right. I think that's, that's not true historically. So if you look at, say, Thomas Jefferson's other writings, it becomes very clear that Jefferson, when he talks about all men being created equal, is, talking, is using the term men the way we might speak of a man-eating lion, right? And if there's a man-eating lion, imagine the women in the room aren't like, oh, it's a man-eating lion. I can go in there. I'm not, no problem. It's not going to bother me. I could have my little sister run in there. She's a girl. She's not a man at all. She can go in. Well, of course not, right? So Jefferson's using this term in an inclusive way, right, to mean all human beings. And the reason I think that is that explicitly in his other writings, he talks about Africans as being beings that have basic rights. Despite holding slaves, he acknowledged that Africans did have basic human rights. He talks about Native Americans also as sharing in human nature and basic human rights. He even talks about women as deserving basic human rights. And again, I know that Jefferson did not always live this out, and the founders didn't always live this out. But theoretically, the idea was any human being, anyone with human nature, would be created equal and have these basic human rights. So if we accept the Kantian view, if we accept this great American proposition that all people, we could say in modern way of talking about it, all people are created equal, um, if we accept certainly the view of Christians and Jews and Muslims, right? That all human beings are made in the image and likeness of God and all human beings are called to have eternal life by God. And so all human beings share in equal human dignity. If we think that black lives matter, well, we should think that terminally ill lives also matter. 
if all human beings have intrinsic value then, then it seems to me that all human beings deserve basic protection by the law. And the most basic of all protections is the protection against getting killed. If you think about it, your right to live is the most fundamental of all your rights because all the other rights that you enjoy are only there on the supposition that you're alive. I mean, if I were to kill you, I take away your right to vote, I take away your free speech, I take away everything, all your other rights. So the U.S. bishops uh, gave it a kind of analogy to think about the right to live a, a little bit like the foundation of a house. And yeah, you have walls of a house, you have roof, you have windows, you have all kinds of important parts of a house. But if there's no foundation at all, well, then the whole house uh, is going to be coming down. So if you accept this idea of all human beings have, having equal basic dignity, well, then it seems that that casts the idea of uh, a subjective view of health and physician-assisted suicide in a different sort of light. Because if it's true that all human beings have this equal basic dignity, well, then that makes the killing of human beings particularly problematic. Now, we might want to talk about exceptions to the general rule, but the general rule seems to be that this is a problematic thing that needs strong justification in order to be, in order to be accepted. And that's exactly what they try to do, is carve out a kind of um, acceptable case of killing. Because everybody agrees that in normal, normal garden variety situation, killing someone else is not acceptable. So what the advocates of physician-assisted suicide do is they say, well, look, yes, of course, you can't just go around killing people, but you can in this case because why? You have a competent adult with a terminal illness who voluntarily requests and obtains a medical prescription to hasten there, and the fifth point would be inevitable and imminent death. So in other words, they want to say, yes, of course, there's a general prohibition on just killing people, but we're going to carve out with these five conditions a very narrow exception to the general rule. But here's the problem. The narrow exception to the general rule, if we think about it, ends up being very arbitrary and irrational, right? So let me explain why. So first, think about competence. They say, well, only competent people should be able to uh, be able to get physician-assisted suicide or voluntary euthanasia. But here's the problem. If you already think that some lives are not worth living, if you, then wouldn't someone who's not competent have an even greater need for this so-called beneficial medical service? In other words, if I am competent, at least I can have, still have my wits about me, and at least I'm doing okay. I can communicate. I can, if I can communicate, I can have some relationships with people. But if I'm so badly injured that I'm not even competent any longer, and again, if you assume that killing someone's a benefit for them, then it seems like I have an even greater need, quote unquote, for the service. And secondly, adults. That seems like a reasonable supposition, right? That you should limit this just to people that are over 18. But again, if you think about the overall justification of reducing suffering, well, if you're over 18, if you're at the end of life, let's say you're 88 years old, well, you only have a short time to live anyway, right? If you're at the very end of life as a senior citizen. But if you were young and in pain, you might have 10, 20, 30, you might have a huge long life ahead of you of pain. And so if you're very young, you can save someone all those years of life, or all those suffer years of suffering rather, by allowing children to do physician-assisted suicide or have, have aid in dying. Uh, the third one is a terminal illness, but that also seems arbitrary. I mean, consider two cases, right? Um, Alice has a terminal illness. She's going to die in three years. Frank does not have a terminal illness. He's just going to be sick and suffering for the next 35 years. Well, again, if the whole point of euthanasia is to, to alleviate suffering, it seems like the person who does not have a terminal illness has an even greater need for this so-called service. And then condition four, voluntarily, voluntarily requesting and obtaining this uh, prescription to hasten their death. So... Again, if we take two cases, one person who's able to uh, voluntarily make their desires known and one person who isn't, but they're both equally suffering, right? Again, it seems like the person who, who can't even voluntarily uh, make any request is in a worse condition than the person who is suffering but can still make voluntary requests. And then finally, the inevitable and imminent death. Well, if you're going to die imminently, that seems to lessen the justification in terms of suffering. Because right? if you're about to die in the next few months or something, you're about to die. Whereas if you're not in the case of imminent death, again, you could go on and on and on. So part of the trouble, I think, for 
thinking about physician-assisted suicide and, and euthanasia, is that once a legal right to die is enacted, this, in fact, can become a duty to die. So think about a concrete case, right, where you have, let's say, your grandma is in a nursing home, right? And I don't know if you know this, but nursing homes can cost a lot of money. There's a nursing home near where I live called Marycrest Manor, and it's about $10,000 a month to be there. It's full-time nursing, doctors, I mean, it's very intensive, and, it, and basically even people uh, right up to the, uh, to the end of life can be there. You can be there, you know, totally unable to talk, et cetera. So it's, but it's very expensive. So imagine that uh, your grandma's in there, right? And she knows $10,000 every month is going out to take care of her, right? And then she also knows that you're going to St. Louis University. And she's read the tuition. She knows what it is. And your grandma might think, I, I better just kill myself. I mean, the, the, you know, every month I'm going through their tuition and they need this money. And yeah, I don't really want to die, but, but you know, maybe this is the right thing for me to do. And this wouldn't be something that she, you might say, freely is choosing, but rather something she feels guilted into. And so imagine your grandma did kill herself. And then let's say it came out why she did this, right? You might feel horrible. You might feel like, I, I, of course I wish she'd never done that. But you can't have vulnerable elderly people who think that they ought to do this as some kind of duty. But the other thing is, and hopefully your family's not like this, but you do have families in which there is not a good relationship among people. And people are and can be guilted and pushed and, and, and moved towards this, this kind of decision. So having a law that forbids physician-assisted suicide is a way of protecting vulnerable people who might be pressured or who might unknowingly feel pressure from, from others to end their lives. Um, another difficulty with thinking of health in this sort of subjective sort of way is I think that the better way to think about health is the objective well-being of the person's physical body. And death, if we think of health in that way, can never, ever be a good. You can think of disease as sort of coming in, in degrees, as it were. So you think of like a super healthy person, Olympic athlete, and then on and on, someone who's kind of sick, even more sick, organs shutting down, et cetera. And then well, what's the extreme of extreme lack of physical well-being, right? The furthest you can go is the total lack of physical well-being, right? The total breakdown of all bodily systems. No system's working right. And that's exactly what death is. So death can't be, if we think of health in this way, a benefit to the one who gets killed. It also uh, corrupts medicine because it provides um, a diminishment for incentives to provide effective pain relief. In fact, if physician-assisted suicide is permitted, then people may respond to those that choose not to get it. Um, you know, look, why, why should we help you, right? You had this way out. You could have taken your own life and you chose not to do that. So own it, right? That's on you. You decided to do that. Whereas the way things are now, when we have physician-assisted suicide, at least in most states, not allowed, that is an enormous incentive to develop better palliative care to, for doctors, nurses, and researchers to develop the best kind of care they can for those um, at the end of life. So let me move on to the third challenge, which was about conscience uh, protections. And this is true for physician-assisted suicide, but it's also true for other issues of conscience, like for instance, um, some proposals that all doctors should uh, be required to perform abortions, otherwise get out of medicine, things like that. Um, I think this is a really, really bad idea for, for a number of reasons. Um, one of the reasons I think it's a bad idea is that it will, in fact, result in a loss of diversity in the healthcare professions. So if you look at people that conscientiously object to these sorts of procedures, um, not all, but a lot of them are religious. But then if you look at um, breakdown of people who are religious, you find that African Americans and Latinos and women are, on average, more religious than white men. So putting in this norm about there's no conscientious protections allowed, in fact, is going to put pressure and drive out a disproportionate number of Latinos, African Americans, and also women. It's also going to diminish the quantity of healthcare professionals. 
because in the United States, at least, about 13% of healthcare is delivered by Catholic institutions. And there's probably more than 13% of healthcare professionals who are conscientious objectors that would refuse to do abortion, say, or refuse to do a physician-assisted suicide. So for a good chunk of those people, if you really force them, you have to do these procedures or get out of medicine. There's going to be some percentage, some thousands of people, maybe millions, who refuse to do these procedures. And so they'll get out of medicine. And of course, over time, they could be replaced. But the loss of those, for instance, Catholic healthcare institutions, hospitals, et cetera, and the loss of those professionals would, at least in the short term, be greatly detrimental to everyone. Why? Well, because the cost of healthcare is determined in part by supply and demand, right? But when you diminish the supply of available healthcare professionals and institutions that provide healthcare, right, that is going to drive up costs for everyone. Moreover, the abolishing conscience protections also is going to result in a loss of quality of healthcare professionals. So as it is now, medical uh, schools do not discriminate against people who have conscientious objection to performing these procedures. But let's say that changes. And so let's say now medical schools do discriminate against those people. And they tell everyone who doesn't want to do physician-assisted suicide, sorry, you can't be a nurse. Sorry, you can't be a doctor. You can't be a pharmacist. You can't, or, or and the same thing, it, say, would be true with abortion. Well, what would happen in the case like that would be that some people who would have gotten into medical school, right, now won't. Now, those places will be filled, right, by somebody. So what you're going to get is some people that were on the B team taking the place of some people who would originally be on the A team. They would have gotten in, but they got discriminated against on the basis of their conscientious objection. But that's something that harms everyone, everyone, regardless of your views on these topics. Because if you go in for brain surgery, right, you want the very best brain surgeon that you can get. And if it's brain surgery, it doesn't matter to you getting the procedure done, whether the person is pro-choice or pro-life, whether they're for or against physician-assisted suicide. It doesn't matter. You want the very best person. But it could be the very best person is someone who had a conscientious objection, so for the, and therefore they weren't chosen. And so someone who otherwise wouldn't have gotten in took that person's place, and now they're doing the brain surgery on you. So like any form of discrimination, anytime you say, well, this group can't participate, black people, Latino people, whatever, well, there's going to be some number of those people that would have been better than other people that they, you know, whose place they took. And so you can see how the quality of healthcare is hampered by these uh, people who want to abolish conscientious objection to these, these sorts of procedures. Um, one final thing that, that uh, abolishing conscientious objection does is it diminishes uh, innovation. It diminishes uh, improvement in medicine. So let me give you an example not having to do with end-of-life care, but having to do with uh, human reproduction. So there are some people, as you may know, that hold that uh, in vitro fertilization is morally problematic. And so you'd say they're conscientious objectors to that. And as a result of that, some of these people have developed new ways of treating infertility. And one way they've done this is through something called NAPRO technology. And that's kind of an umbrella term covering a bunch of different interventions to restore fertility. And NAPRO technology is about 80% uh, about of the time they can help someone who's been diagnosed as infertile to actually be able to get pregnant and have a baby. Whereas in vitro fertilization success rate is about 30%. Right? So 80% versus 30%. Now, that would have never happened right, if it weren't for these people who refused to do uh, in vitro fertilization and sought alternative ways of restoring fertility. This could happen also with respect to uh, transgender uh, interventions. So there are people who object to uh, treating people with gender dysphoria by means of treating the person that has this with medications that... Uh, that change the appearance of the person or by surgeries, removing healthy organs, et cetera. But imagine if there, I mean, it's theoretically possible that there could be treatments that would help get rid of gender dysphoria without radical surgeries, without taking hormones, et cetera. That seems like an option that at least some people would like to have, just to not, no longer have their gender dysphoria, rather than, say, go through surgeries and things like that. And the same thing's true of physician-assisted suicide. 
if we require that all doctors, healthcare professionals, etc., sign on to this and, and abolish conscience protections, I think that diminishes the incentive and the drive to develop better palliative care, better care for people at the end of life. Because you can say, look, we've got this available. Why don't you just use it? Why should we try to you know, develop something else? The fourth challenge I mentioned was called body self-dualism, right? This is the idea that the real you is not your body, but the real you is your soul or your thoughts or your minds, your beliefs, etc. And there's different ways to critique body self-dualism, but here's one way uh, to think about it. There is uh, a psychiatric disorder called um, multiple personality disorder. And so in a situation like that, there's one individual, but the individual has different alters. So let's say, say I have this, this condition. So there'd be uh, Chris, the philosophy professor, then there's Jacques, the French cook, and then there's, um, who else could I be? Uh, Hoist, the jujitsu master. And so I'd have these three different personalities, and these would be totally separate. So you talk to the philosophy professor and talk about Thomas Aquinas and be like, I'd be able to talk to you. But then when Jacques showed up, he'd only speak French. He doesn't know any about philosophy at all. He knows about cooking or something. And then Hoist shows up, and he only speaks Portuguese. And if you want to learn about cross-collar chokes, he'll tell you about that. But he doesn't know anything else other than jujitsu, and so you have three different personalities, right? Now, if a psychiatrist comes along and cures me, right, and gets rid of Hoist, gets rid of Jacques, and now I'm just Chris, full-time Chris, I think the best way to think about that is that this physician has really helped me. This physician has cured me of a kind of illness. But if you took body self-dualism seriously, you'd have to come to the conclusion that actually what the physician did was destroy to persons, right? There was Jacques, Jacques got destroyed by this procedure, and there's Hoyce, and he got destroyed by that procedure. So really, the doctor hasn't done a curative act, a healing act, but really has destroyed these two different personalities, um, these two different persons, because to be a person, at least for Locke, involves different chains of memories, thoughts, beliefs, desires, etc. But I think that clearly is absurd. Right? This doctor clearly has healed me, not harmed me. And that seems like a good reason to reject uh, body self-dualism. The fifth challenge I talked about was vitalism. Right? And vitalism is this idea that because every human being has equal dignity, because every human being has value, therefore, we ought to always extend human life as much as possible. And I think this is a mistaken way of thinking about things. And, and one way to think about it is considering the difference between the value of a treatment on the one hand and the value of the individual on the other hand. In other words, you can see how not every procedure is valuable, but you could hold that every person is valuable. Those are two different things. So when you're evaluating, is this treatment valuable? What you need to think about, it seems to me, is the burdens of the treatment and the benefits of the treatment. And those are going to vary from situation to situation and individual to individual. So for instance, let's say you're getting chemotherapy. What are the burdens of the treatment? Well, you're going to lose your hair. You're going to feel really sick. It's going to take away your energy. It's going to take tons of time. So there's lots of burdens to the treatment. What are the benefits of the treatment? Well, if it's successful, it can push back the cancer. And that's obviously worthwhile. So it seems, is this a worthwhile treatment? Well, I think it depends. Right? If you get cancer, it probably would be a worthwhile treatment. Right? You're 20 years old. Great. You've got years and years of life. But if somebody who's 96 gets cancer, should that person get the chemotherapy with the burdens and benefits of treatment? Well, no, because the burdens and benefits are radically different for the person who's 96. Right? They're you know, already at the very end of life. And even if the chemo is 100% successful, they've only got a lifespan of a year left or whatever. Or you could even make it. Uh, make it more obvious, right? Think about the benefits of, um, say, uh, having a cancerous organ removed, right? Um, well, if you're an individual who has multiple other organs that are cancerous, some of which can't be removed, right? For you, the benefit would be almost none, right? You're not really getting any benefit at all from having this one cancerous organ removed because you have cancer all over the place. So the burdens and benefits of treatment is not really determined. Uh, you can't just have a general rule about that. 
right? So you could have the exact same treatment, and for you it's beneficial, for you it's not beneficial, and for you it's kind of a, you know, in between. But that's a totally different question than are you a valuable person? Are you a valuable person? Are you a valuable person? If what I said earlier is correct, the answer to that is always yes. Every single human being is valuable, regardless of if they're rich or they're poor, if they're black or they're white, they're wealthy, they're healthy. It does, it, none of that matters, right? All human beings have equal basic value, and that means all human beings have equal basic rights not to be intentionally killed, not to be tortured, not to be raped, not to be mutilated. All that would be equal for everybody. But it's a different question whether this procedure is more burdensome or beneficial. And there could be 20 different answers if there's 20 different people. And at the end of the day, it is, at least partially, a subjective judgment. In other words, the doctor can put forward options that are medically uh, indicated. But at the end of the day, a person could have and does have the obligation to decide for themselves, is this really the best treatment for me? Because after all, you're the, it's your health, and you're the one who's going to have the final call in terms of making the decision about, is this treatment more beneficial than burdensome? And again, maybe it would be for you, and maybe it won't be for you, even though it's exactly the same treatment, right? That, that could be. So there's a legitimate plurality, a legitimate pluralism in judgments about what treatments are, are beneficial or not. So this vitalism is, uh, is problematic also because it fails to distinguish between intention and foresight in terms of treatments. So if you're intentionally killing someone, you are killing them as a means or as an end. Or as Kant would put it, you're using them simply as a means to get to whatever end it is that you're, you're getting to. By contrast, if you, say, uh, refuse to get a medical treatment, it could be the case that you foresee that this could shorten your life. So then this, the importance of the intention foresight distinction becomes relevant. So let me try to give you a couple examples to sort of jog your intuitions, and maybe this will be clear. If somebody throws a hand grenade in the room now, and let's say uh, Professor Ebrel tries to save us all, like he looks around and sees all these young people here, it would be a shame for them to die. I've lived a rich, great life. So he jumps on the hand grenade, right? And it blows up, and he dies. I think that action's not, properly speaking, suicide. Even though he knows it's a hand grenade, he knows he's gonna die, it's not that he's uncertain about the, the uh, results of his action, but properly speaking, I'd say that's not suicide. Why? Well, because he wasn't seeking his own death as a means or as an end, right? By contrast, what suicide is, is when you seek your own death as a means or as an end, right? It could be that it's a, a means to something else. Like if I kill myself, my kids are gonna get the life insurance and money and they'll be able to go to college, right? So I kill myself as a means to getting life insurance. Or it could just be as an end in itself, right? Maybe I hate myself so much, I'm like, you know, I hate myself so much I'm gonna destroy myself. So that's the whole goal, not to get anything else, but just to end my own life. But if you're dying and your death is a foreseen effect of your action, as takes place with soldiers, right? If, like the poor people in Ukraine now, right? Fighting for their country. They have to know they're risking their lives and some of them, I think, know that they're going to die. But that doesn't make their, their actions suicidal, right? That they're foreseeing and accepting is an unfortunate side effect of their action that they're going to die. And that's morally different than intentionally killing. So when we're thinking about the burdens and benefits of a treatment, there, I think the right way to think about it is to say that this treatment has certain burdens and has certain benefits. But if in a situation where you, say, decline a treatment, you say, I'm not going to get the chemotherapy, even though I know it may extend my life. That can be uh, a way of killing yourself. It's possible that someone intends to kill themselves with that, but it's also possible that they're not trying to kill themselves, that they're just saying, look, this treatment is so burdensome and I already am going to die anyway of something else. I don't want the last few months of my life to be with chemotherapy and I'm throwing up and I feel like hell. I'd rather just live the last few lives, months of my life um, you know, without the chemotherapy, even though I accept as an unfortunate side effect that it may shorten my life. That's not the same as, as suicide. Okay, the final part, and really briefly, I just want to talk about models moving forward. And I guess I'm going to talk about concrete people. And the first one I want to talk about is uh, a guy named Aloysius Gonzaga. 
Uh, he was a uh, nobleman in uh, Italy, if memory serves, and his Jesuit superiors thought that he was uh, such a, a dandy and a nobleman, and they thought he needs something really tough. So what they did is they sent him to hospitals. And the hospitals of uh, his age were, uh, were tough places, even more so than today. They did not have, as we do today, uh, adequate ways of relieving pain. They don't have as many palliative measures as we do today. And it was true that when uh, Aloysius Gonzaga first went to this assignment, he absolutely hated it. It was awful. It was terrible. But he was animated by this sort of Christian spirit. And so he saw in those who are suffering another Christ. And so he actually had a kind of transformation as a result of this uh, experience. And so when a terrible plague uh, hit the country, he did not abandon his post. He ran into the suffering. He ran into helping those very much in need. Um, we see another great example of this in St. Marianne of Molokai and St. Damien of Molokai. So Molokai uh, is an island uh, in, in, the, in the Hawaiian Islands where they used to send people with leprosy. And basically, these poor people, at the time, they couldn't treat leprosy. And you know these poor people were suffering terribly and fingers dropping off and all kinds of horrible suffering. And these two, uh, the uh, St. Marianne, her religious order was asked to go there after about 200 other religious orders declined to go. So they asked all these different orders of nuns, will you guys go and serve the, the needy and the poor there? And they were all like, nope, we're out. Too hard. And fair enough. I mean, I don't want to get leprosy. That seems like a tough, that's a tough assignment. Um, but they ran into the trouble. They ran into the difficulty. And so I guess to conclude, I hope that that's what many people, uh, maybe some of you do today, that there is going to be an enormous need for people to help other people at the end of life. And whether that's helping them as a healthcare professional um, or, and this is probably going to affect all of us, in our own families, in our own personal lives. I mean, all of you have parents and, and grandparents, I suppose, still alive, and you can make an enormous difference for helping the end of their life be much better than it otherwise would be, right? What would happen if you called your aging uh, widowed grandma every week, right? Just to be nice, just to make her life better. What would happen if you, if you could, visited her every Sunday, right? You brought over some cookies, told her stories about college, you gave her a big hug. You told her how much you loved her. You told her how sorry that you are that she's suffering from cancer and that her knee's on the fritz. You can do that. And you can make an enormous difference by listening to the elderly, right? By holding their hand, by praying with them, by being present in their suffering and not running away despite it being very hard. Maybe you live far away from your grandparents and you can't do that. Well, I bet you there's houses nearby here that have infirm elderly. Almost every city has them, right? What if you went there every week, said the rosary with some person that was really not doing well, listen to their stories about World War II and the jokes they told, right? You can't take away their suffering, but you can always be there with them in their suffering. And you can show them by how you talk to them and by how you treat them that you love them very much. And in doing that, you can take away maybe the worst kind of suffering that they may be experiencing, the suffering of feeling like no one cares about you and that you're worthless and that you're not loved. It might take some time, but it might be something very, very beautiful to do. Thank you. assumptions about the mind-body dualism and the attributed dignity over inherent dignity. So what can providers who don't subscribe to that, what kind of conversations and dispositions do you think would be beneficial for them to take into their patient care when you are treating patients that have these secular assumptions? 
Yeah, that's a good question. And, and I don't think that when you're treating a patient, especially when they're suffering, you want to get into a big philosophical debate with them, right? right? And be like, hey, I know Plato holds that the soul is imprisoned in the body, but I think he, I have an Aristotelian hylomorphic view. Let me tell you. Yeah, I mean, probably you don't want to do that. So I guess one thing to do, uh, and this is generally true of disagreeing with people when you don't want to be disagreeable, is to listen really carefully to what they're saying. And then to try to ask really intelligent questions that might make them think later and maybe even reconsider their view. Because I think if you try to push back directly, typically what that does is make people push back on you directly. So there's a sort of you're using, you know, and then they push back. And I, again, I think argument's great and philosophical conversations are great. And this is a great place for that kind of thing. But the bedside and they're sick and that seems like not, not the best way. I had a question about just uh, a scenario came into my mind. You talked about how, say, the actions of soldiers who may know that this wouldn't kill them is not probably suicide. Right. So if you would forgive the example, let's say that there is a person that has a terminal illness, and by the time that the terminal, like by the time that it actually kills them, all of their organs would have been completely destroyed. Mm-hmm. Well, well, do you think it would be morally permissible to say that for this person to say? You know what? I would like to. I would wish to die earlier so that my organs may not be as damaged and may be able to help other people, including perhaps my family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In that case, the end is not death, but to preserve one's organs for somebody else. Mm-hmm. Would that be? Do you believe morally permissible? Yeah, I think it wouldn't be because remember I talked about intentional killing as a means or as an end. So in that case, aren't you killing yourself as a means to? making these organs available. Now, I do think that the fact that you want to make your organs available could be relevant for your own considerations of the burdens and benefits of a treatment, right? So you could imagine somebody saying, look, I'm already doomed to die. My death for sure is going to happen this year. Now, whether it's in three months or six months, I don't know. So the benefit to me for getting this life-saving treatment is very small, since it only extends my life a little bit. Um, now, part of the burden of the treatment is the, you know, the key, whatever it is, the chemo, whatever it's getting. So given that someone has a short time to live, say, it seems to me that, that not taking a medical treatment would be, would be acceptable. And then if it also is true that, that not taking the treatment is going to uh, benefit others, that seems acceptable too. So, but yeah, I don't, the scenario you described, though, would just be killing yourself in order to make your organs available. And that's not, that's, that's not acceptable. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the trouble in part with this view that doctor's goal is total well-being, health understood in this broadest sense, like, like who understands health. Um, I think it, it clearly is problematic though, because if you go to a doctor, you might have social problems and be like, well, I don't have enough friends or I'm looking for someone to get married to. It's, I don't see how you could think it's a doctor's job to be like, well, I'll you know, set you up. I've got a daughter. And, I mean, like, clearly that's not the doctor's job, right? I mean, doctor's job just isn't that. Um, and it isn't to help your social life and make sure you have a, a wide group of stimulating friends that are great to talk to. I mean, it's just not part of what a doctor as doctor does. Now, it could be coincidentally he has a daughter that you can marry, but, but, but that's not as a doctor what he's doing. Yeah. Um, yes, Father. So I found your presentation um, ecumenical in spirit insofar as you talk about kind of a common understanding of these things among kind of religious believers of various types and Kantians and so forth. Is there anything specifically Thomistic about the approach that you would take and the answers that you would give? I thought ending, ending on the note of love was probably part of that, but anything particular to the thought of Aquinas and the tradition that comes out of it. Yeah, so when I was talking about body self-dualism, I didn't really cite Aquinas explicitly, but he was a, certainly the person who was animating my, my thoughts. So as you know, his anthropology is very much uh, not akin to a Socratic you know, soul imprisoned in the body. He says famously in his commentary uh, on Corinthians that anima mea non est ego, my soul is not me. I'm not my soul. So he thinks that he would think that this body self-dualism view is, is very problematic. Um, and then also I would say this would be true of Kantians too, but Aquinas has a, a very explicit idea that there are some actions that you should never do, some intrinsically evil actions. And that is also held by Kantians, right? The idea that there's, you know, you should never use 
a human, humanity in yourself or another. Never use it simply as a means, but always respect it as an end in itself. But Aquinas is really clear on that. And one of the, as you know, one of the intrinsically evil actions for him is intentionally killing an innocent person. So if that's right, then it seems like physician-assisted suicide is, is off, the, off the table. So that's sort of in the background. Um, yeah, what else was explicitly Thomistic? Yeah, I wouldn't say, uh, well, I'd say this. When I do medical ethics, at least, it's, Thomas is always in the background. In other words, if you think about the ultimate principles that are, at least in my mind, as, as the kind of starting points and the, the touchstone key points, it is all Thomistic. But when I do bioethics, at least, for the most part, what I try to do is express what I take to be either principles that Aquinas explicitly does endorse, or at least principles compatible with this thought, but to try to express them in a, as you say, a kind of ecumenical way, or to try to express them in such a way that even someone who didn't believe in God or, you know, not a religious person at all, hopefully could at least understand, if not kind of sign on to. So, so it's sort of, uh, at least how I think about bioethical questions, um, it's not the only way to do it, of course, but I, but I think in a way it's easier to communicate with people that don't already agree with you if you can cash out these things in a, in a language that's more accessible. It, yeah. Um, there, yeah, there's more to say, though. I mean, you could, like, for instance, you could think about explicit virtues that Aquinas talks about, like the virtue of courage. It seems to me that's a virtue that at the end of, night, at the end of life you really do need because if anything's going to provoke fear in almost everyone, it's death. I mean, this is obviously, <laughs> if not the scariest, at least among the scariest things that any human being ever, ever encounters. And so courage, of course, is that virtue that Aquinas uh, talks about that has to do especially with facing death. Now, the paradigm case of it is facing death in battle, right? But, but facing any kind of death, it seems to me, involves a kind of courage. So how do you do that well, right? It's, it's, it's proper to be afraid of death, but we shouldn't be too afraid. We shouldn't be overly afraid. We shouldn't be so afraid of death that we do anything to stay alive, like murder innocent people and do terrible things to stay alive. But, yeah, but I do think that courage is, is a kind of virtue. Now, that's not unique to Aquinas, of course, but, but it's something I didn't talk about, which, yeah, it seems like that's certainly relevant. Yeah. Um, yeah, sure. Um, could you speak to the difference between... Like, we have this discussion of euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide of the act of, like, ending someone's life mm-hmm. um, versus also people may have to make the difficult decision regarding, like, uh, allowing someone to die yeah. or letting someone die, you know, taking away the ventilator or whatever yeah. is the thing that's keeping them alive. And that's a really difficult decision in healthcare too. And it reminds me of what you talked about, of, like, that vitalism of mm-hmm. just keeping people alive for, you know, the sake of keeping them alive always. And so um, could you discuss kind of the difference and the, the difference in the moral questions be- between, like, the taking of somebody's life um, and killing them or just allowing them to die and taking away the thing that is keeping them alive right now? Yeah, yeah. So I think to understand the difference between killing someone and, say, removing uh, life support, um, we have to rely on the distinction I talked about a little bit already, the distinction between intention and foresight. And I think this is relevant not just for issues of medical ethics, it's relevant for many other issues. So take, take the case of um, two different dentists, right? So you go to one dentist and he's like, this is really going to hurt. I've got to drill your cavity. And sorry, you know, doing the best I can, but it's going to hurt. Um, so he foresees that this is going to cause you suffering. But then you can imagine a sadistic dentist, right? He got into dentistry because he loves to cause pain. And so he intends to cause you pain. He puts, he, you know, puts in the Novocaine shot, but he kind of misses. He knows where it should go. He, he purposely doesn't. And so you really feel every bit of the pain. So the second dentist is intending to cause you pain. And that's different than someone who merely foresees you causing pain. So in given human realities, we, it's almost impossible not to... Uh, do actions that you foresee are going to cause problems and pain and suffering and, and, and even sins. So think about paying taxes, right? You have to know some of the money you pay for taxes is going to be used by some people for bad things, right? People get their welfare check or whatever and they spend it on bad things or they buy products they shouldn't buy and they cause trouble. But you're not really responsible for that. So the intention foresight distinction is quite important. 
So if we think intentional killing is intrinsically evil, does it follow that removing life support that's keeping someone alive is also intrinsically evil? I would say no, precisely because of this intention foresight distinction. So if I, we remove life support, uh, we make a judgment that this treatment now is more burdensome than beneficial. So how does that work? Well, you think about what is the treatment giving you? So it's allowing you, your life to continue. So that's a benefit. But what is the burden? Well, the burden could be that it's painful for you to have this sort of treatment. It could be that it's burdensome for you, that you are, uh, you know, don't want all these tubes. You don't want to be hooked up to all those things, which I get. I mean, who wants to be hooked up to a bunch of tubes for months and months? And so you could imagine somebody saying, look, I know maybe for someone like you, you're young, you're going to recover quickly, I'm going to you know, be on the tubes. But someone who's 97 years old is like, look, I'm already at the end of my life. I, I don't want to spend what little time I have left on this earth hooked up to all these tubes. I'd rather go home, be at home for a month, and I'm going to die. Okay, I, I accept that. Mm -hmm. I foresee that this is going to shorten my life, but I accept it. Um, again, not because my goal is to kill myself. So part of the way to think about this might be that if your goal is to kill yourself, then you are deliberating for that goal. And if you fail to achieve that goal, your plan has failed. So let's go back to the ventilator case. Let's say you remove the ventilator and the person just survives. Like maybe there's a misdiagnosis, right? Well, you're not gonna be like, oh shoot, our plan failed. Now where's that lethal injection? Let's get in there and sh you know, shoot them up with, well no, because you'd be like, oh great, okay, they're, they're fine. They, they don't need the ventilator anymore. So the goal or the plan is not to end their life. That's a foreseen effect that you accept as a side effect. And again, we do this all the time with all kinds of things. Think, think for instance, about taking medications. Very often, right, you take a medication and your intention is that you take care of this medical problem you're having, but you might know as a side effect of taking this medication, it gives me a headache. Well, you're not intending to give yourself a headache. You're accepting that as a side effect of this medication. Now, is it justifiable? Well, that's a judgment call that depends on the situation of the person. But basically what you do is you consider, again, the burdens of the treatment and the benefits. And you say, well, do the benefits outweigh the burdens or not? And again, you might have two individuals that come to different conclusions, even though they're getting the same treatment. But that's the sort of analysis that you want to do. Thank you. Yeah. So. So kind of going off of that then, so when you look at something like hospice care and like, you know, a lot of times, I mean, it's known that like you're giving high amounts of these pain relieving drugs right. that like may kill somebody. Would you consider that to be a side, like death as a side effect, but like the benefits are that this person is feeling better? Like, is that a justifiable? Yes. Yes. So yeah. So say you're in great pain and we give you, uh, we give you painkillers. And yeah, it takes away your pain. So far, so good. But then you develop a tolerance for it. So next week, we have to give you more painkiller to get, to get rid of the pain. Okay, so far, so good. It would be justifiable to keep on going with that procedure, even though at a certain point, you may know, look, if we continue this, this may end up suppressing breathing. So that would be a foreseen, but not intended, effect of relieving your pain. And that's permissible. That's permissible. Yeah, so a related topic, um, admittedly I'm in a Catholic health Catholic class right now, mm -hmm. our topic is um, artificial nutrition hydration. Oh yeah. Um, and so I know that, and we've kind of looked at the ethical re religious directives mm -hmm. around it, and kind of seeing how they've even changed a little bit, especially with uh, John Paul II. Right. Um, and so, and what hasn't quite, at least for me in the class, hasn't quite been answered is what, because it kind of says like, in principle, you should follow yeah. that these are, you know, um, Ordinary means, ordinary yeah, yeah, yeah. Ordinary means of life. Um, so what it like, I guess the answer that, that has, or the question that hasn't really been answered me is like, what does that in principle mean? And like, when you are, or, or what are the instances where like, well, this might not be an ordinary means. Um, so yeah. Because like, it does seem like it's pretty vague, kind of for a reason almost. That yeah. Like, there will be certain instances where you could re uh, take that away from someone. But, yeah, yeah. I th I'm not positive, but I think the what they're thinking of is a case where you could deliver uh, hydration and nutrition to someone, but given their deteriorated bodily condition, they no longer can really assimilate it. Mm -hmm. So you could imagine somebody who was in such a grave condition that their body really no longer could digest, really no longer could, could accept uh, that. And so at that point, 
there would be no obligation to do that because given their bodily deterioration, they're no longer, their body is no longer able to receive and assimilate what, what other, an otherwise healthy person could, uh, could, could receive. So that's one case. But another case, and this is very far-fetched, but you could imagine an emergency situation where given the scenario that you're in, you can't provide it. Like, so for instance, think about, say, someone who's receiving that in a Ukrainian hospital, right? And the Russian soldiers are coming in, the bombs are falling and whatever. And you could imagine somebody say, look, uh, yeah, normally I would, but given that, you know, there's a bombs and, you know, soldiers coming down the hall, I can't, given this crazy situation we're in. So that's another sort of scenario. But I think the first thing I talked about is what they're thinking of, right? Where you're, the person's body is so deteriorated and so they're so sick that they can't, can, can no longer really assimilate the, 